Hola. Hi. How are you? Hi. You're so lovely. So, guys, Erica gave me a copy of a book to read. So, when is your book going to be available? Well, it's available in the United States on November 2nd. And I believe now in the UK, because of supply chain issues, it's available the beginning of December. But it can be, you can purchase it online at Amazon or Amazon UK, and they'll deliver it to you, I think, on the, the drop date, which is in December, beginning of December. Yeah. Yeah, so let me tell you a bit about Erica. So she is a clinical social worker, a psychoanalysis and a parent garden parent guidance expert who's been working in a private clinic for over 30 years you are part of the contemporary Freudian society wow that's uh that's quite weighty um and a consultant um to a consultant bringing parenting workshops into schools clinics and corporations and childcare settings and you've also written some other books such as why prioritizing motherhood in the first three years matters and you've been on various uh, TV stations. But yeah, you have an amazing accolade. What made you write the book that you've just written, Sky's Falling on Your Head, um, now? Why is that important for now? Well, I think it's important for now because there's so many children and adolescents suffering and parents suffering, seeing their children suffering. And in my practice, I was continuing to see this uptick in mental health issues and mental disorders in adolescence and, you know, knew that parents have a great deal to do with helping their children. I'm a parent guidance expert. So I work with parents to work with their children, to help their children. And so, so many of the things that I could do with my patients in my practice on a one-on-one basis, I wanted to offer to parents in a wider in a wider scope, you know, to help parents who couldn't be in my office or maybe couldn't be in some individual parent guidance mm-hmm. expert's office. Um, and what's basically happening in society, because usually people ask me, you know, what, why, what's happening in society that we have this huge epidemic of, of mental disorders in young people? And uh, my answer is always the same. You know, adolescence is in and of itself a trauma. Uh, it's a very challenging time physically, emotionally, uh, for children, even if everything goes well, and even if you have had secure attachment in the first three years, even if you're emotionally secure. Uh, but what we're seeing is we're seeing more children that are heading into adolescence, uh, less emotionally secure, more fragile. And so that becomes a perfect storm with the stress that they face because the stress is greater than ever. Uh, you know, it, it used to be that adolescence was challenging socially and academically, but today the academic pressure, the the social changes because of social media, um, you'd say the threats of global warming, the, you know, it, it's, you pile one stressor on another for adolescents and you end up with a perfect storm if you pile that on a child who's already going into adolescence very emotionally fragile. And especially with COVID and the whole, everything's been stripped, all the the security, all the places that felt safe were taken away in a blink of an eye and nothing was put in its place for a very, very long time. 
Well, as I say, young children did very well with COVID. Um, young children got a lot out of COVID, actually. Uh, they ended up having what they needed, which was much more time with their parents. Okay. Now, adolescents um, also need more time with their parents than they're getting. So it wasn't all bad, COVID. Uh, the issue was that adolescents need to regulate their time with their parents with time away from their parents. And COVID kind of limited the time away from parents connecting with their peers, which they need to separate from us. I mean, in order to separate from us, to wean from us and, and dependency on us, they need to lean into their friends. And they were not they were more socially isolated. They couldn't see their friends. But again, nothing is all bad. So even though it was an amplifier in some ways, mm-hmm. I think what may also have happened is parents who are around their teenagers and adolescents more And so they were able to observe their behavior more because we're so busy and distracted and self-centered, to be perfectly frank, uh, as parents. Um, We love our children, but we're all really busy, 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 busy. And and so I think in that busyness, we don't always see what's actually happening. And I think what happened is parents and kids were in the house together in such a way that parents could really observe. You know, we say right before you go to sleep is the time that you feel most anxious. So in the quiet, right before you go to sleep. I would say in the quiet of COVID, of being together, parents were able to observe that their children are suffering from depression or suffering from anxiety. or um, and, and so I'm not sure that COVID really was the cause, but it was the amplifier. It was the magnifier. Um, it was the signifier, if you will, that, that something is going, going wrong. I like that. That's a different perspective about it, because sometimes COVID does get blamed for quite a lot, doesn't it? But also in in that, what I've seen is young people have really questioned who they are, what their purpose is, what 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 is life about. You know, they wouldn't have had that chance if they'd gone. They would have been too busy, wouldn't they? They don't have time to reflect. But a lot of young people have, and they have. I think they've a lot of them have grown up uh, a lot. They've matured a lot more. Um, So they. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I, I think, again, you know, to give a different perspective, because it's always good to have a different perspective, it, it's given parents another opportunity to help oh. to process their kids' feelings, their kids' experiences, their kids' relationships, um, you know, so it when we're busy, we don't necessarily, so, so what I talk a lot about in the book is presence of mind and physical presence, that you can't be emotionally present for your children if you're not physically there enough. Mm -hmm. Even though adolescents seem not to need you, they need you a great deal. Uh, They don't need you in the same moment-to-moment way as your little children, because little children actually, infants need you from moment-to-moment. Toddlers need you from moment to moment uh, to regulate their emotions, right? Because distress is an ongoing thing for infants and and toddlers. Adolescents also have a tremendous amount of emotional dysregulation where their emotions go too high and too low because as I'm sure your other speakers, and I heard a little bit of Fiona before me uh, said, the, the emotional regulation part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until 25. And we know that because of the, decade of the 90s, which we called the decade of the brain, where we started to have the technology to actually look at the brain and see that, well, the emotional regulation part of the brain was lagging behind in development. And yet these other parts were not. 
um, the reward center, the threat sensing part of the brain. This all this mm. all these parts of the right brain were charging ahead with development. And yet the emotional regulation part of the brain was lagging behind. And so COVID kind of gave parents another opportunity, a second chance to, I mean, adolescence gives parents a second chance to really be there physically and emotionally as much as possible. What what I call when the door swings open, because Mm -hmm. adolescents have very intense defenses, much more so the young children, young children will take you whenever they can have you. Um, the, the issue is with adolescents that they can only take you when they can take you, meaning when their defenses allow them to take you in. And, and that means that you have to be there enough. So when the physical door to their room opens and when their defenses are down, let's say they come up for a meal or they go to the bathroom or you know they have a question about their gym shorts that you have to buy for them. There's an opportunity to chat with them. There's an opportunity to observe them, to identify feelings that you see, to talk about the specifics of their day and their relationships and help them to process their emotions and their experiences. But you can't just come home from work or wherever you've been and knock on their door and say, I'm here, ready. Ready. It doesn't work like that with adolescents. You really have to be there on their time. So when the door swings open, you're there. Otherwise, the door closes and you have to wait, really, for the next time their defenses allow you in. You also mentioned um, attachment. So attachment and kind of like them naturally learning to be independent and have their own space um, as a way of processing or or creating anxiety. Mm-hmm. So how do we help them transition in that period? Well, when, when they're little, when they're zero to three, we have to be there from moment to moment so they can do what, what Margaret Mahler called emotional refueling. When they're infants, they just need us all the time. Um, and, you know, in other parts of the world, infants are worn on parents' bodies to, to create that bond, to create that emotional attachment and what we call secure attachment. So it's that moment to moment um, soothing them when they're in distress that creates that attachment and that secure attachment. Um, as they get a little bit older into toddlerhood, what they're doing is this kind of um, exploring of the world and then coming back to emotionally refuel what Margaret Mahler called rapprochement, kind of going back and forth and emotionally checking. And sometimes it's a physical hug they come back for to touch base with you. Sometimes it's a glance back at you, you know, uh, and then they'll go back out and explore. And guess what? They're doing the very same thing emotionally and neurologically because their brains are kind of doing some of the same things that they did in sort of three. Because uh, the brain is reorganizing and pruning all those cells that it's produced over the first nine years, it's kind of reorganizing them. Um, and so they're doing the same thing. They're trying to create a sense of emotional security by a glance back at you or a touch base with you. Um, and so what creates that sense of security is that emotional refueling. And again, if you've if you've personalized, and one of the things that one of the biggest mistakes parents make is that they feel rejected. They, they personalize um, their children pushing them away rather than understanding it. And I find that when you understand why someone's doing something, you don't take it so personally um, and you don't internalize it. And then you don't react in such a way that um, 
is angry or uh, you don't retaliate, you know, so parents really need to be settled in themselves and secure uh, to understand that it's necessary for kids to push you away and reject you. Otherwise, as I say to parents, sort of funny and euphemistically, you will end up with a 45-year-old child living in your basement and nobody wants that, right? You want them to go off and have their own lives, but to do that, they need to push, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if you don't take it personally and you hold those feelings of yours and not, um, not project any of those angry or insecure feelings onto them, then they can do this kind of back and forth, right? They can go and explore and come back and refuel and get a hug and chat and then go back out. And that's really what they need. They need you to be their secure go-to person that is there when they need you and they can touch base with, so they find that security. So, you know, um, it's and a lot of things can happen in adolescence that destabilize an adolescent. And one of the things um, that can happen that really destabilizes an adolescent is divorce. Um, so my next book is going to be about how to divorce without doing harm to your children. Uh, mm-hmm. And for real, that is my next book, because mm-hmm. the reality is that um, if they can't go back and forth, um, then then it's really a problem, right? Then they don't really get that reinforcing of the emotional security. And a lot of what has been built can collapse. So that if they don't have somewhere to emotionally refuel, they can they can become quite isolated and quite lonely. And then one of your one of the lines in your book it was talks about chronic loneliness affecting the brain. And so that's 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 really sad. So what can a mum do if you know she's there, she wants to reach out, but now it's, it's, it's just been a bit long. It's been yeah. How, how how does loneliness affect the brain? Let's start there. Well, loneliness again. I, to, to reframe it a little, loneliness is is a human condition, and it's not necessarily a bad thing because loneliness loneliness is the motivation for us to seek contact with other human beings. Mm -hmm. So loneliness, depression, anxiety, these are not, these are, they're all part of the human condition. Um, It's when they are very intense and when they are very chronic, meaning if we have loneliness that is kind of pervasive in our life and lasts for more than two weeks with great intensity, then we say it may be a condition, but a lonely moment is not really what we're talking about. But what you're talking about is what happens when an adolescent seems incredibly socially isolated and seems to not have that peer contact, friends, which they need Mm -hmm. to kind of move on in development. So development requires friends. And it does because as they're weaning from us, they're getting a lot of that emotional comfort and support from their friends. They don't need a lot of friends. You know, some kids have big groups of friends and that's fine, you know, but many kids just need one or two good friends. Um, What do we say? A group is more than two, Um, you know, so it might be three kids, including your child. Um, It's really just having their friends as go-to people, as they're sort of like driving a manual shift car, which nobody does here in America, but I know you do in Europe, right? And in the UK, mm-hmm. which is 
as you're pulling your foot off the gas, you need to put your foot on the clutch. As you're putting your foot on the clutch, you need to pull it off the gas. It's like that. As they're weaning from us, they need their friends. So what to do if they don't have friends? Um, the idea is not to get into an anxious state about it, but to help them, to provide them with a home that is welcoming, to encourage them to maybe pay for them to go out and have dinner with one friend. They don't need a huge group of friends um, to create events that that are fun for them, that they can include one, two friends in those events. Um, and if it continues that they don't seem to have any social contact, then talk to them about talking to someone because they may be suffering from something called social anxiety. And that can be cured and helped and healed. What if, if they don't want to, though? If they don't, you cannot help no. an adolescent who doesn't want help. But what you can do is listen. When we say God gave us two ears and one mouth, mm-hmm. that means just to listen more than we speak, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to be a good listener, to not give it advice unless they ask for it and ask them if they want your advice, but don't give it if they don't want it. Um, listen to them and try to understand their position. And then mentalize with them. Say, I wonder, mentalizing is using your imagination to to put yourself in their position or to imagine what they're feeling and to say, I imagine it's hard when you don't, when you feel you don't have a good friend or a couple of good friends that you can share with. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you like to speak to somebody? Because there are things that you can do. And then finally, there are socialization groups, but they have to be willing to accept the help and socialization groups are kind of therapeutic groups. They have them in schools, therapists run them for kids to talk to other kids about how hard it is to meet other kids. (laughs) They're called socialization groups and they're therapeutic groups. And they're really helpful because the group itself forms a group, but they also help kids to, um, to kind of learn to interact with other kids. And the other thing is, um, helping them to find interests that they like. So our job as parents is not to prescribe their interests. So Mm -hmm. parents get confused. They say, I want my child to play football. I want my child to play piano. I want my child to, you know, play in the school band. And, but that's, what's important to you. But our job is not to prescribe what's important to them. Uh, It's to help them discover what's important to them. And, most children don't have passions. Most children just have likes and dislikes, right? Very mm-hmm. few children have passions. Very few adults have passions. We just have likes and dislikes. And so what you're trying to do is introduce them to enough activities that they like, that then they're able to meet other kids who like the same activities. You know, you like comics and that's really important to you. You know, I heard that there's a big Comic-Con and, you know, would you like to go to some of those? Um, well, it's hard in COVID, right? Uh, would you like to go to that Comic-Con conference and mm-hmm. I'll take you or buy you a ticket and you can go to some of the meetings there and meet some of the Marvels, you know? So it's really kind of um, helping your children to find their likes and that in, in, in order and sequencing helps them to find other kids like them. Mm. I think there's a lot of parents waiting for their kids unfortunately to either go to college or to leave college. And then they'll, when they have more choice, then they'll be 
they'll find the friends that they want. So you'd want to look at the psychoanalytic. I'm a psychoanalyst. So you'd want to look at the psychoanalytic institutes like the Tavistock ah, okay. London or the Anna yes. Freud Clinic or those places train. So we say psychoanalysis is the terminal degree for talk therapy. It's it's the longest training. It involves analysts being in treatment for many years themselves, which I always say to anyone who's going to go into therapy, make sure you ask the clinician that you're going to see or the clinician that your child is going to see what kind of postgraduate training they've had. Um, have they been in treatment for many years themselves? You can ask that uh, in the first session. And you should ask that because a therapist should never be treating a patient if they haven't been in many years of therapy themselves before they treated a patient. And there are a lot of people, I don't know about the UK, but in America, a lot of people are treating patients with a psychology degree or a social work degree or a psychiatry degree without ever having been in treatment themselves. So that's something you can ask. And I encourage people to ask that because it's a really important factor. <laughs> it really is different when you go through therapy yourself. It really yeah. is a big eye opener. <laughs> And you have to keep doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let me ask you another question. So the whole risk-taking, reward-seeking, right? So they just cannot help but it relates into the drugs and alcohol we're just talking about. It just kind of goes throughout, doesn't it? They almost can't help themselves. Why is that? So again, remember I said there's what we call asymmetrical brain development. That means that the reward center of the brain and the threat sensing, but for this purpose, you're asking about risk-taking. So that's the reward center of the brain. It's called the ventral striatum. It's part of the right brain or the social emotional part of the brain. And that part of the brain has this kind of um, asymmetrical development. So the, the ventral striatum is the part of the brain that controls dopamine production and dopamine receptors. And dopamine we know is what makes us feel good when we're stimulated. And uh, basically, because of this part of the brain zooming ahead with activity and vigilance and activity um, without the so we say it's all um, all gas and no brakes because the brakes are the emotional regulation part, which doesn't really fully kick in until 25. Um, the research shows that when when an adult is stimulated at a mild level with novelty or risk-taking or any kind of stimulation, drugs, alcohol, you know, um, you know, pornography, gambling, uh, video games, any kind of stimulation. Um, when an adult is, is stimulated at a, at a mild level, there's a mild dopamine reaction. When an adult is stimulated at a moderate level, there's a moderate amount of uh, reaction. And if they're stimulated at a high level, there's still a moderate reaction. When an adolescent is stimulated at, um, at a mild level, it's mild, the reaction, the dopamine reaction. If they're stimulated at a moderate level, it's moderate. But if they're stimulated at a high level, it's over the top tenfold a dopamine reaction. And that's what causes them to become addicted because it is an extreme dopamine reaction without the part of the brain that slows it down, calms it down. So, um, and, and, and that's really the problem because that causes things like 
novelty-seeking, risk-taking. So what can you do about this? Because this is really part of brain development. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually not pathology. It's part of brain normal brain development. Um, one thing is that you have to substitute. And the, the analogy I use is if you step on a landmine um, and you want to take your foot off that landmine, you have to find a really big rock to put on that landmine where your foot was, if you're going to remove your foot. And so my analogy is you have to find other things that your kids can do, your adolescents can do that are risk-taking that are supervised and healthier. Um, So rather than them, uh, you know, uh, jumping off of uh, 20 foot, you know, ski jump without, you know, without supervision, you get them into rock climbing or you get them into a ski club where they are supervised uh, or you get them into, um, you know, uh, any kind of risk taking behavior that is that is condoned and supervised. Right. And so and that can be sports that can be that can even be things like skateboarding and things that are slightly risky, but um, but can be supervised or, you know, or you know, you have some control over, right? There's the big rock. You have to find things to replace uh, the 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 higher risk taking, more dangerous activities, but you can't eliminate them entirely. So just mm-hmm. telling your child, these are the consequences. And, you know, I always say it's your job as a parent to help children to understand the consequences, because that's something that they uh, aren't very good at because, that's part of executive functioning, which is also lives in the right brain, which isn't fully developed. So executive functioning is things like judgment and organization and connecting actions to reactions and consequences to actions. And that's not fully developed. Um, so you, you know, you kind of have to help them with that, which is, and be patient about it. So, you know, if you drive the car at 90 miles an hour and you hit a wall, like, you don't just get hurt, you like die, you know, this kind of thing. And, and, and so you're actually trying to say, and, you know, it, it's fine that you uh, rock climb, but if you don't use protection and you fall, what do you think is going to happen? So it's, it's this kind of, kind of connection without judgment. So it has to do with tone and it has to do with um, really helping them to make connections they can't make for themselves. And that's a preventative thing Um, because once they're already doing those things, it means that, you know, you, you may have missed some, some, um, some point of entry that would have been helpful. doesn't mean you can't do it at any point, but you want to try to do this stuff preventatively with alcohol. For instance, I, I heard Fiona speak uh, uh, before me and um, the reality is all those things that she said are absolutely true. The problem is that it's not going to stop kids from drinking. And it's not going to stop kids from smoking. And it's not going to stop kids from experimenting because we did that too. <laughs> you did it. I did it. Maybe not everybody on this call did it, but pretty much we all did it. Um, and so the idea is not to go at this as if they're not going to try things. There's a big difference between experimenting and becoming addicted. And so one of the ways that you help kids with this is one, 
you stay in the role of parent. You don't be don't become their friend because you can't become their friend. You can't be their friend and their parent. That means you shouldn't drink with them and you shouldn't smoke weed with them and you shouldn't do cocaine with them or ecstasy with them. Okay, none of that. Right. Um, you are the parent. You are the limit setter. But that doesn't mean you have to be judgmental um, and you have to be realistic. And so that means, you know, being wise as a parent of teenagers means helping them to understand if they're going to drink and you know they're going to try alcohol to understand what the rules of alcohol really are that grown-ups understand which is that hard alcohol if you do a shot of hard alcohol it doesn't affect you right away and kids end up in the hospital with alcohol poisoning and die because they continue to do shots because they can't feel the effect of the alcohol. And they've heard from their friends, alcohol gives you a buzz and it makes you feel this way, that this way, and this way. And so they keep going and kids in America are doing as many as 15 shots because they're doing them in rapid succession, not feeling the effect. So one thing we can do is from the out, from the outset, explain to them, teach them, you know, if you're going to try alcohol, and I know you are, and if you try a shot of hard alcohol, vodka, gin, whatever, uh, tequila, whiskey, you have to understand that it takes a while for your body to kick in with it. And so you have to wait. And that probably is going to be enough for you. And if you keep going in rapid succession, you can get something called alcohol poisoning and you can die from it. And so these are the things. So parents are afraid to elevate their kids' anxiety. We obviously don't want to create anxiety, but you do want to elevate some anxiety, which is about teaching them, you know. Um, and so, yeah, risk-taking behavior, experimenting with novelty, wanting to have feelings that you get from doing drugs and alcohol. There's, there is no way you're going to stop your kid from trying those things. So what you're trying to do as a stopgap is help connect things without judgment and in your tone without judgment, helping to connect actions to consequences. Hmm, because that's, you just answered the next bit, which is about, uh, I don't know if I've read it right, but it's, they don't process negative consequences for, as well as positive ones. That's right. And that's that's really interesting that it's just unbalanced. But And you wouldn't call... You, I guess you could call them consequences. You call them rewards. And so oh, one, rewards. One, yes. thing, one thing we know is that stimulation, a lot of stimulation, and there's so much stimulation today in the world, a lot of stimulation results in a huge dopamine response. So what we know is that kids respond to rewards. And so if you want to influence their behavior, rewards like money money and parents say to me, oh, I can't give them money. That's a bribe. I'm like, you bet it's a bribe. And guess what? It works. So if you say to your kid, you know, um, I want you home no later than midnight, you know, every, every night that you go out, I want you home by midnight. And every night you're home by midnight, I will put $5 or whatever, five pounds in your in your debit account, in your checking account, or every time you get a B on a test in school, or I don't know what it would be in the UK, you know, a good grade, not, a, mm -hmm. you know, not to encourage them to, you know, every time you get a B, you get, you know, 20 pounds on a test, you get 20 pounds in your account, and you can use it for whatever you want, you can use it, go get pizza to go get, you know, whatever, food or buy yourself a video, get whatever. Um, it, the, the research has shown that, that things like 
money and sugar, believe it or not, money and food. Absolutely. Uh, In America, we say, buy them a Shake Shack card. Food and money have been shown to impact adolescents' behavior. So they're very sensitive to rewards. So rewarding them, bribing them is actually a healthy way to, to help control their behavior. Yeah, I love it that you say encouragement is a more powerful tool than punitive measures. Yes. Definitely, because that's we know that doesn't work. But yeah, that is, oh my gosh, I could talk to you for ages and I'm, you've got so much. And basically it's in a book uh, and there's loads of research. I love you, lots of current up to date latest research. So thank you so much for sharing. It's been so interesting. And I love how you tie up the science with the practical um how how you know how it looks in the reality of parenting and and how yeah there's still more questions I have but that's fine it's in the book thank Thank you you. enjoy the rest of your day bye bye I've learned loads from Erica and I hope you guys have too please can you share it with your friends and that's it guys have a really really good day bye bye